All right. But um, today, the reason we're here, we're going to continue in our study of Genesis. We're we're finishing up our ninth month of the study of Genesis. It's been amazing to get to know uh, God through this book and and be exposed to these these, these many different aspects of God. We see in chapter one, the creator God, obviously. Shortly thereafter, we see this God uh, of uncompromising uh, tendencies. He gave one command, don't eat of the fruit. They ate of the fruit, out they go. There's no compromise with God. It's really awesome. We see later on a God who's only willing to put up with so much. Uh, In the case of Noah, God had gotten so disgusted with the evil of man and he he wiped out the earth and he, he preserved Noah and started over. Only to be disappointed again when, when he asked Noah and his, his descendants to fill the earth. They, they instead decided to gather up and build a city with a tower and walls. And of course, God had to thwart that as well. But in chapter 12, we see this amazing thing that happens. We see, we see a new aspect of God. And it's, it's, the, it's the one that should be the most important to us. And it's the God of relationship. You know, God picks this guy, Abram, and he says, you're going to be my guy. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to make a covenant. And that covenant is going to extend through all of your descendants. Um, And of course, that's the covenant that we uh, are part of today as disciples of Christ through his death and resurrection. That should be very encouraging to us. You know, today we're going to actually finish out the book of Genesis. Um, It didn't take us a whole year. It's only going to take us nine months. So we'll be picking up in the middle of uh, chapter 49 if you'd like to turn there and you can read along with me in a second. But last week we were in uh, chapter 48 and we see Jacob, who is now Israel, and he's finally living the way you would expect a patriarch to be living. He's finally living up to the dignity uh, of the covenant that God extended to him. You know, throughout Joseph's, or excuse me, Jacob's entire life, we see him bungling along, falling into disappointment, sin, mistakes, failure. But finally, at this stage in his life, here in Egypt, he's the patriarch that God has always called him to be. His family is united underneath him. He's 147 years old and he's about to die, but he's able to pull himself up as Israel and and pass on blessings. uh, First to his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then in chapter 49, the first 28 verses, you see him blessing his sons. Um, We're not going to read all of those, but I encourage you to read it. He, He gives these very patriarchal, dignified blessings. Unlike his, you might remember his father Isaac, his father Isaac was tricked into giving blessings. But Jacob is finally this dignified, honorable patriarch, passing on these insightful blessings to his sons, remembering their past. He remembers Reuben and Levi and Simeon, his first three sons, and he kind of shorts them of the blessing they may have expected because he remembers Reuben's sin in, in defiling his couch. And he remembers the bloodshed from Levi and Simeon. And it's not until he gets to Judah that he gives this powerful blessing. He says, he tells Judah, he says, your brothers will praise you. He says, you're a, you're a lion cub, he tells him. And of course, that's hugely prophetic because we know that Judah will become by far the, the most powerful and influential tribe uh, amongst Israel. And of course, from him, David, King David will come and Christ will come, right? And, and we see Jacob... Finally at this place in his life. And he has one final wish. He, he tells his family that, that, that I need you to take me back to Canaan. I need you to take me back. 
And we're going to pick up there, excuse me, in, uh, in chapter 49 and verse 29, if you'd like to read along with me. It says, then he gave them these instructions, he being Jacob, them being his sons. <clears throat> I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Continuing on in chapter 50, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. And that is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. He stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, 
he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. A lot of text. Thanks for uh, hanging in there with me. Um, you know, as I said, we, we see Jacob at this time in his life. He's, he's spent 17 years in Egypt. And it's been 17 good years. He's, he's escaped the famine. His family is finally reunited. He's finally being honored and respected the, the way you might think someone who's in a covenant relationship with God to be. He, uh, he, uh, he, he's, he's, he's a man of dignity. And we can see that by the way they treated him in death. It says that they embalmed him and then they mourned him for 70 days. That's not a whole lot different than how they would have mourned the death of the Pharaoh himself. And when they, when they took him back to Canaan, all the dignitaries of Egypt went along, as well as this military procession. It was quite the state funeral that he was given. Things had gone well for him in, in Egypt. And yet, his dying wish was to have his body taken back to Canaan. You know, why would he want to go back to Canaan? You know, Things hadn't gone that well for Jacob in Canaan. If you remember Genesis, it, Canaan is where he was born. And where he had this disappointing childhood experience. Never really living up to the, the approval of his father. Certainly not getting along with his brother. He had to, he had to kind of skin out of, out of uh, Canaan pretty quick and under, under unfortunate circumstances. Basically running for his life. He winds up in Padan Aram where he gets off to a rough start. But ultimately he prospers there. He prospers outside of Canaan. He starts to get his own in a foreign land. He, he acquires wives... Servants, children, flocks, herds. He becomes wealthy. And then he returns to Canaan only to come across trouble again. His daughter becomes the victim of rape. His sons become uh, murderers, pillagers. Uh, his oldest son basically commits incest. Uh, and then his sons conspire together to sell off his favorite son like a piece of livestock. That's, that was Canaan for Jacob. And then ultimately it was famine from which he had to flee only to get to Egypt. And as I said, start to do well again. And so why go back to Canaan? And Joseph, for that matter, Joseph wanted to go back to Canaan. He said, take my bones out of here when God takes you out of here. Joseph was 110 years old. Only 17 of those years were spent in Canaan. Canaan, excuse me. But they were horrific years. He was hated by his brothers, openly hated, not secretly. It was out there. And ultimately, of course, as I already said, he was sold into slavery after they considered killing him. And then, of course, in Egypt, he got off to a rough start, but not only did he do well in Egypt, he did famously well. He, he rose to become basically the second most powerful man in the known world at the time. He, his, his wife was given to him in Egypt. She wasn't from Canaan, she was Egyptian. His sons had never seen Canaan. Why go back to Canaan? You know, I can kind of relate myself. I, I, I was born in Ohio, and I had a decent childhood growing up. Ohio? Right. right on. It's a great place to be from. Um, but I, I, had, I had a good childhood, uh, but I had a lot of trouble too. And uh, I had to get out of town kind of quick. Um, and I, 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 I fled into a Navy recruiter's office. And uh, after bouncing around to a couple different places, I landed here in Virginia. And, and just like Jacob and Joseph, I got off to a rough start in this new land. But ultimately, I started to gain some traction. You know, I, I, I got a job that, was, that paid the bills. And, and I, I, I uh, married a wife who has not divorced me, um, which is awesome. And uh, I had sons, 
you know, and I found Christ in Virginia, and I'm sure he would have been other places too, but, but here's where I found him. And I, I have this great church family that means more to me than, than probably anything else on earth. Why would I go back to Ohio? My wife's from California. She's, she's from a line of hippies and tree huggers. There, there, there are no hippies in Ohio. I could never take her back there. So, so Joseph and Jacob, why did they want to go back to Canaan? Well, well, you know, Ohio was my home state and Canaan was their homeland, but it was more than that. It also represented the promises of God. You know, the entire second portion of, of the book of Genesis has been all about God's promises. And up until now, we've, we've tended to focus on the descendant aspect of the promise. Your descendants will be more than the sands of the sea, the stars of the sky, and that, that's, that's appropriate. That's, that's huge. But there was also intrinsically all throughout this a promise of land. There, there, this land was part of this covenant. Um, in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God tells Abram, I'm going to come out of the land of your father and come to this land that I'm going to show you. He renewed that with Jacob in, in chapter 28, in chapter 31, in chapter 46. There's this, there's this promise of this land. You're going to inherit this land. We'll read in Exodus in the coming weeks that when, that when God... Rescue, when God called Moses to rescue the Egyptians, he, he, he said, I'm going to take you to a good, spacious land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. That's always been part of this promise for God. And, and Joseph took it on, even though he hadn't gotten it directly from God, just going on faith from what he had heard from his father. He knew that that was the promise. He knew that Canaan was where they belonged. In Numbers 13 and 14, you can read that later. But when, they, when, the, when the Israelites, after escaping Egypt, got to the promised land and they sent in these spies, they sent in 12 spies, said, figure out what's in that land that God says we should be in. Tell us what's there. And these spies come back and they say, yeah, it's a really great land. It, it does indeed flow with milk and honey. And, 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 and it's a great place. But there's a problem. It's not easy. It's going to be challenging. There's, uh, there's these giants over there. There's these fortified cities. There's these walls. We shouldn't go. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. Maybe if we had just stayed in Egypt, we'd have been better, better off. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, they saw the same things that the others did. They saw the challenges. They saw the hardships. They saw the danger. And they said, no, this is our promise. This is where we have to go. God will be with us if he's pleased with us. They were relying on that same faith that Jacob and Joseph were relying on when they said, take me back into Canaan. Canaan is the promise. And as God's adopted sons and daughters through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that promise extends to us. You know, we are now people of the promise. We are now people of the covenant. And I don't think we often think of it in terms of land, right? You know, we, we, we have sort of a, sometimes maybe we over-spiritualize it. And we have this tendency to, to we have this idea of, of, of heaven, you know, as, as this non-physical place. You know, but Jesus himself said in, in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't think that's a metaphor. And I think Jesus is being straightforward. In fact, when we read in Revelations 21, which I think has the best description biblically of, of what we have come to understand as heaven, John specifically says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be a new Jerusalem. And Jesus, or God rather, will dwell there with us. That is what we understand to be heaven. There, there's a, there, there is indeed a land promise that extends to us. 
You know, and we wait for that promise to come true. We wait for the, the evidence of that promise. We wait patiently and faithfully just as Jacob and Joseph continue to wait for it. Now, why don't we turn over to Hebrews 11 really quick. We've been referring to, to Hebrews a lot during, during our study of Genesis. And particularly in Hebrews 11, we have, the, uh, we have what we've come to call the Hall of Faith. All of these great uh, people of faith lifted up by the author of Hebrews because of their faith. Uh, and we, we see Abel and Enoch and Noah and, of course, Abraham and his descendants. And it goes on into Gideon and Samson and so many more. But as the author of Hebrews is lifting up these people for their faith, in, in chapter eleven thirteen he takes a pause from that. And he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That same city that they wait for is the same city that we wait for. That's the ultimate promise that, that spurs us on as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we wait. And I think maybe the question that we should ask ourselves today, right now, does it seem worth the wait? Is the, is the land too far off to really contemplate and motivate us? Is the road... To Canaan, a little too tough sometimes. Are the temptations of Egypt pulling us back constantly? Are the tangible promises of Egypt, this land that we can see, you know, whatever it is, right? Are they, are they more enticing than the promises of the unseen God that we are asked to put faith in? You know, the, the, the temptations of this world, they don't just tempt us into sin necessarily, but they, 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 they vie for our hearts. They vie for our trust. They vie for our confidence. You know, maybe, maybe in your case, maybe your job is finally starting to, to click. Maybe you're finally starting to make the money you feel like you always deserve. Maybe you're getting the respect, finally, that you deserve. Maybe people are looking up to you and admiring you, finally. You know, only to come to the kingdom, only to come back to the road to Canaan and be told, well, you're supposed to be humble. This isn't about you getting respect. You're supposed to put yourself lower than others. It's tough. You know, maybe you're maybe you're not in that place yet. Maybe you're younger. Maybe you're still in school, and maybe you're finally starting to fit in. Maybe you're finally starting to see your way into the right clique, the right crowd. Maybe finally, after all these years, you're going to be accepted in school or whatever social circle. But that's just such an incredible human need—the need to be accepted. And maybe you're finally going to have that validated. Only to come to church and have some guy read to you that we're supposed to be aliens in this land. That we're not supposed to be looking for acceptance here in Egypt, in this world. Our promise is in a new land. Is it worth the wait? Is it worth the wait? Maybe you're like me and you're just lazy. And all you want to do is rest. You know, I work... Like most of us work, and sometimes you ask somebody, hey, what are you going to do this weekend? Oh, man, I'm just going to catch up on my sleep. 
And I think, oh, that would be awesome. Lock the door, shut the blinds, turn off the phone. Then I come to church and I'm reminded that it's my place to show up and encourage you and serve you and sacrifice for you. It's not about me. right? It's about God and his promises. You know, maybe you're tempted to just deny God's word altogether, even though you know it's true. You know, maybe you know, for instance, that, that God loves marriage and, in fact, hates divorce. And you know that your destiny in Christ is, is with your spouse that, that's been so graciously and generously given to you. And that's how you can glorify God. But, you know, maybe lately you haven't been getting the respect or the love or the attention at home that, that, that you always thought marriage would be. And, and lo and behold, it happens that there's this person at work that just hangs on your every word. Makes you feel so loved and respected. Laughs at your stupid jokes. <laughs> Never, ever criticizes you. Ever. And maybe you think, yeah, I know what God's word says. But, it, but this feels so right. You know, it feels so good. Maybe, maybe, maybe in some strange way, this is the promise. Maybe this is the promise. Maybe I can pray to God and see if he can reveal to me that this is the way I should go. You talk, the Bible talks about detestable prayers, right? And surely that would be one of them. You know, kingdom life is not always easy. Kingdom life is not always fun. Kingdom life is not always self-affirming. Kingdom life is quite often selfless. Kingdom life is alienating to us sometimes, just like it was to Joseph and Jacob and so many others, so many other men and women of faith. But as hard as it might be sometimes, it is indeed the way to the promises that God has for us. It's the narrow way that Jesus spoke about. It's how we faithfully tread towards our own land of Canaan. You know, God made a perfect covenant of promise with Israel. Uh, by the way, the first point of the sermon was God's promises. I forgot to mention that. Uh, I can write that down. Um, you know, God made a perfect covenant of promise with Israel. And that extends to us today. And every single second of every day throughout eternity, God honors that covenant. You know, what will our response be? You know, point number two is the sovereignty of God. If you've written down the first point, now you can quickly write down the second point. You know, uh, switching from sort of the, the, this get back to Canaan uh, narrative, you know, the, 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 the Bible talks about this interaction between Joseph and his brothers, right? And, and after they get back from burying Jacob, his brothers start to worry. You know, maybe Joseph, maybe we're finally going to get what's coming to us, right? And, and they, they send messengers to Joseph. And, and I think it's an interesting story. The, the message is, hey, Joseph... Dad said that we should tell you that he wants you to forgive us. Now, I, now the Bible doesn't say whether that's true or not, but it, in my, for me, it really smacks of the typical sons of Jacob and their scheming, right? I mean, if Jacob wanted Joseph to forgive his brothers, why wouldn't he just tell him while he was still alive? He'd say, hey, Joseph, why don't you forgive your brothers? But no, he, he tells us. But anyway, I don't know that it's not true. But now that I've planted that seed of doubt in your mind. Let's, let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and move on. 
But they, they throw themselves at his feet and offer themselves to him as their slaves, begging for mercy. Of course, they're fulfilling his, the prophecy of his dream from chapter 37 when he, he dreamt that their sheaves would bow down to his sheep. This isn't the first time they bowed to him. They bowed to him when they first entered Egypt, but they thought he was somebody else. Now they're, now they're bowing down to this guy that they know is their little brother, the guy that they sold out, the guy that they contemplated killing. But Joseph weeps when he hears of this. You know, and it doesn't really say exactly why he might have wept. But you know, I imagine that he was just perhaps blown away that after all this time, after all that he had done, after all that they had witnessed, after all that they had been through, they still didn't get him. They still didn't understand his motivations. They still didn't understand that, quite frankly, he wasn't like them. He was not like his brothers. You know, he forgave. Not only did he forgive them. But he saved them. He, 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 they would have been dead of famine if it had not been for him. And here in this passage that we read today, he offered to take care of them and their children. You know, of course, we see the parallels with Jesus, obviously, right? You know, Joseph was wrongly treated, unjustly abused as Jesus was. Um, he overcame like Jesus certainly overcame. And he turned to the people that had wronged him and forgave them. And of course, we see that in, in Jesus as well. But I think it's important for us to spend a little time thinking about Joseph. Because we're always telling each other, you should be more like Jesus. And of course we should. That's biblical. But it's real easy for us to give ourselves a pass on Jesus, right? I mean, he is Jesus, right? He's the son of God. He's perfect. It's easy for me to say, well, I'll try to be like Jesus. But of course I'm never going to actually make it because I'm not. Jesus, I'm not the son of God. But Joseph wasn't Jesus. You know, Joseph wasn't the son of God. Joseph was a man just like you and I. But for some reason, throughout the book of Genesis, we see Joseph reacting to life's challenges righteously. I mean, from chapter 37 to the end, you see a parallel path. You see Joseph being righteous as life throws him challenges. And you see his brothers being sinful. His brothers are always getting into trouble, always seeking after their own, always scheming. Joseph, on the other hand, is suffering, but always being righteous. When he was tempted by Potiphar's wife in chapter 39, his response to her was, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? Against God. He wasn't thinking of the wicked things that had been done to him. He wasn't thinking about his desires. He wasn't thinking about his lot in life and what he may have deserved given what had been done to him. He was thinking of God. How could I do this against God? When he was taken before Pharaoh and, and, and lauded as, as a man who could interpret dreams, his, 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 his exact words were, I cannot do it. He said, I can't interpret dreams. God can interpret your dreams. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking, man, this is my ticket out of trouble. He said, no, 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 I can't do anything. God, God can do it. And here, he's forgiving his brothers. And he says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And, and that's, a, that's a very popular passage. We think about that a lot. Um, you know, God's sovereignty, right? That's what we're talking about. And what, what God is in control of everything and everything works out for his good. But the part of that, the part of Joseph's response that I really get convicted by is what he says right before that he says to his brothers am i in the place of god am i in the place of god you know, 
God was absolutely sovereign to Joseph, not himself. You know, I think we missed the, the, the boat on Joseph a lot. I'll never forget years ago, my, my son's 14 now, but years ago when he was maybe seven or eight years old, I, I, I was always trying, how can I get my son in the Bible? What, what's the best way to get the Bible real to, to, a, to a young man, a young boy? And, and one of my schemes was, I was like, son, we're going to study out some great men of the Bible. Right? And I think the very first one we picked was Joseph. And I'll never forget sitting on the couch and he's sitting there looking at me and we're reading these passages. And I say, you see that, son? He resisted temptation. Strong, righteous. Like, yeah, okay, dad, I got it. And, and, you know, and, and see how he was merciful to his brothers and he didn't keep a record of wrongs. That's awesome, isn't it, son? Yeah, yeah. I said, son, you and I, we need to be like Joseph. Okay. Do you understand? Yes. Right. Can you do it? Yes. All right. Now, go on back to third grade or wherever it is. And be like Joseph. Yeah, but, but, but Joseph is not the, the central figure here, right? I mean, Joseph wasn't superhuman. He was not a spiritual alien of some kind. He didn't have this extra dose of the Spirit of God that's unavailable to you and me. He was able to be righteous, not because of who he was, but because of who God was to him. God was absolutely central. You know, in Colossians 3, Paul reminds Christians, us, says, set your hearts and your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We see Joseph doing that over and over again throughout his life. He's constantly bringing up God. Whereas we see his father and his brothers constantly looking at the ground, constantly looking at things below, always falling into sin, always getting disappointed, always disappointing others, always hurting people because they were always seeking after their own. We don't see Joseph seeking after their own, after his own rather. And the reason is because he was so consumed with God's sovereignty in his life. He saw the hand of God in everything. He trusted to his ways, even, even when they were painful, even when they were horrific. He kept looking at God. God was the most real thing to him. You know, is God real to you? Just how real is God in your life? Does your life reflect the reality of God, the presence of God, the, the, the inability of you to see anything but God? You're so consumed with your love for him and your gratitude towards him. You know, when God is that central in our lives, we can be like Joseph. Not because we're strong. But because we have the same God and we worship him in, in the same way. You know, when God is central and sovereign and all powerful to us, then we have the, the faith, the strength, the, the grace to, to let go of our sin and, and to respond righteously to the things in this life that come upon us. You know, sometimes I think we miss this in our church culture. Um, excuse me. You know, we're the... We're the body of Christ. We're, we're a fellowship. We're, we're brothers and sisters. And, and as such, we, we share in each other's sufferings. And, and, and righteously so. Thank God that we do that. And um, you know, when I come to you with my struggles and, and share my pains and my burdens, you know, I'm, I'm met with often sympathy, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm met with... Uh, 
with uh, attempts to comfort. You know, come on, Tim, it's, it's not that bad. It's going to be all right. You know, I, I met with, uh, maybe you even offered to pray for me. Pray that I'll be delivered from whatever this difficulty is, right? Pray that, pray that I'll get through it. You know, come on, Tim, we can do this. God, God's with you. He'll, he's fixed your problems in, in the past, and he'll, he'll fix your problems now. And, and, and I think all that is perfectly good. But I think it stops short. Because when I'm struggling and when I'm suffering, I think what I really need from you is for you to point me back to God. And to pray that I can have not deliverance from my troubles, but rather a greater faith. Faith to know that God is central. Faith to know that God is sovereign. Faith to trust in his ways that I don't understand. And, and most of all, I need to be reminded that God is to be exalted. And I am never to be exalted. You know, it, it is in God's exaltation that I have hope. You know, what, what, I have a problem, I want God to solve it. Okay, God solves it. Is that the end of my problems? No. There's just going to be another problem. Do you think your kids are just going to never disobey you again? Do you think your spouse is never going to argue with you again? You think you're never going to have problems at work. You're going to have problems. You have problems today. You're going to have problems tomorrow. You're going to leave behind a bunch of problems when you die. But God's exaltation, God's exaltation is your hope. Christ in you, your hope of glory. And it should probably say your only hope of glory. Right? You know, do we believe that? Do we believe that these amazing promises that God will not fail on, that that's enough? Is that our hope? Is that what we're longing for? Is that what we're trusting in? Is that what we're believing in, even when it's not obvious? Well, I would hope that the answer is yes. But if the answer is yes, then that begs another question. What's your problem? Why is my face downcast? Perhaps more often than not. Why are you so stressed out? Why are we anxious? Why are we scheming to bring about our own good? You know, one of my favorite psalms, my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 4610. And you all probably know it. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. That's always been my favorite uh, psalm, one of my favorite verses. Even since before I was a Christian, I would dabble in the Bible. And I like that because it's easily misinterpreted. And I could misinterpret it to, to justify my own desires. You know, be still. I like that. I like being still. You got work for me to do? I'm going to be a good Christian and be still while you do the work. Um, want me to go share my faith? How about you share your faith? I'll be still. Okay? Um, and of course, that's not what it means. In fact, be still is probably not the best translation. The, uh, the NIV and, and the ESV, for that matter, say be still. And know that I am God. I'm partial to the NASB, which, which claims to be a more literal translation. It actually translates, it tries to translate from the Hebrew or the Greek word for word. And in the NASB, it says, cease striving and know that I am God. I can't remember the song that we sang this morning, but it talked about the, when strivings cease, right? And, and interestingly, if you look at your NASB, it'll say, cease striving and know that I am God. 
And the word striving will be italicized. And the reason is because the translators of the NASB will occasionally insert words to make the sentence make more sense to us as English speakers. They, they translate it so literally that, and if you ever learned a foreign language, you understand how a direct translation doesn't always make sense when you read it back to yourself. So they'll insert these words. And in, in the case of this psalm, they inserted the word striving. So the Hebrews would have actually read it this way. Cease and know that I am God. Stop. And know that I am God. Stop what? Stop sharing your faith? Stop coming to church? No. Stop what? Stop trying to exalt yourself. Why do I know that? Because the rest of the psalm, God tells us, I will be exalted, God, in the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. You have to stop trying to exalt yourself before you will know that I am God. And that's our problem. We're always trying to figure these things out on our own. We're always seeking after our own. We see Jacob's sons, Jacob himself, constantly going after their own desires, constantly responding to their own impulses, constantly being driven by their feelings, not by God's word. Whereas we see Joseph constantly looking at God. And despite how things were going for him at the time, despite how he felt, despite how he was being treated, he exalted God because he knew that his hope was in the exaltation of God. You know, Genesis shows us that God is sovereign, that he's a God of promises, and that he's a God of relationships. And, and, it, and it shows us that, that God has the deepest imaginable commitment to his chosen people. First Abraham and his descendants, and now through Christ to us. <clears throat> his promises are perfect. And so are the exceedingly difficult ways in which he brings them about. Joseph knew this seemingly his entire life. Jacob, on the other hand, never seemed to get it until, by God's grace at the very end, his faith was revealed. And he was the patriarch that God had always promised him he would be. And now, as disciples of Jesus, beneficiaries of that same promise, it's, us, it's up to us. To figure this out, to figure out God's sovereignty in our lives and how this is going to work and how we should respond and how we should be. I'd like to close, if you'll join me, in 2 Peter chapter 3. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way... What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. <clears throat> but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Thank you. We're dismissed.